Hello, and welcome to episode six of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer stewart and as always, I am glad you are here with me today. You are in for a treat. My guest today is Fran Seppler. For 30 years, Fran has helped organizations to create safe, respectful work environments and respond to bullying and harassment. She's a consultant, researcher, investigator, and trainer. Fran and I get into a variety of topics from gender to group bullying to what great managers do and more. If you haven't yet listened to episode three on building a culture of respect, you should definitely check that out. It's a nice companion episode to this one. Today, we're going to talk about kind of what goes wrong when you don't have a culture of respect. But in episode three, we talk about how do you take action to start to create that culture of respect or enhance it if you've already started down that path. There's also a guide that I put together available at mamieks.com slash podcast dash zero zero three that can help you to introduce some new respectful behaviors on your team. Now here's my interview with Fran. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Fran, thank you so much for being here today and chatting with me about building a respectful work environment free of harassment. I'm really excited to dig in. I'm excited too. Wonderful. Um, So I actually did an episode a couple weeks ago, it was episode three on building a culture of respect, but you are the expert on this topic. This is your specialty area. So what is a respectful work environment look like in your experience and why is it so important? When we talk about a respectful work environment, respect embraces really three fundamental perceptions that we want to create. One is respect itself. The second is fairness. And the third is safety. And so to to pick that apart a little bit, we want to have an environment in which people feel absolutely safe, uh, certainly physically, but also emotionally and psychologically so that they can take risks and bring their best ideas to the table without any fear of being denigrated or cast aside or ostracized or targeted. Once we create that safety, that sense for people that they are always going to be safe to do their best in the work environment, then we want to be sure they're being treated fairly. And there's a couple components to that. The most important one is that people feel as though they have a voice in decisions that are going to affect them and that the decisions that are made in the organization are made free of bias. And then finally, that people are on a daily basis treated in a way that shows their value, that shows them that they matter. If we can get all three of those perceptions ticked up in a workplace, we know absolutely by the evidence that people are going to be more productive. They're going to commit their best thoughts and their best ideas. They're going to be more creative. They're going to be more engaged and they're going to stick around. And That's, of course, the the business case for creating these perceptions of respect and fairness and safety. So on the flip side of that, what's the downside, right? If you're not doing this, not just on the team, but on the individuals who are kind of experiencing that lack of respect. So there is a great body of work on what happens when people feel the absence of those things. And remember that we're talking about perceptions here, perceptions that are created over time. So when people perceive that they're unsafe at work, They engage in unhealthy coping mechanisms. That ranges from gossip and tying together and and creating alliances to try and battle for territory or for status in the organization 
to withdrawal, fear, and disengagement. When people feel that they're being treated unfairly, they agitate against the organization. They say bad things about it to their friends and family. They even may litigate against the organization in the worst case. And when people feel as though they're not being treated respectfully, they retaliate. So disrespect nets disrespect. And there's a wonderful little study where um, somebody was treated disrespectfully and then asked to respond to a perfectly innocuous email. And just by virtue of their having been treated rudely or disrespectfully immediately before, they responded to this very, very innocent email with all caps and really angry words. So you could see that retaliation happening almost immediately. And it's it's not against the person who treated you disrespectfully. That's so interesting because in the episode I did, I talked about the importance of email and how we communicate by email because it's so easy to misinterpret what somebody says. And if you're frustrated by one thing and then you send an email to someone else and you're letting out your anger on them, it just, as you said, it, it's a cycle where disrespect begets more disrespect. And unfortunately, you can get sucked into that cycle. Yeah. And if we flip that over, what we know is that actual little bits of respectful behavior actually create a positive brain change. They give you a little squirt of happy brain chemicals and you tend to treat other people in a similar way as well. So we can choose which cycle we want to be on. We can choose that chain reaction. What are some of the little behaviors that are either, we could talk about the bad behaviors that people might not even know they're doing that are actually signs of disrespect or some of the good behaviors that people can do more of that aren't huge behavior changes, not you know major things they need to, to do, but they're little things that can really start to shift in environments. So one of the coolest things that I do is an exercise with groups where I simply say, what are those little bits of behavior? And we brainstorm them. And I'll share with you that some of the most common respectful behaviors that people name include listening, uh, making casual eye contact, acknowledging people and greeting them, asking people's ideas and opinions, and of course, then listening to them, showing an interest in people beyond the transactional nature of work, uh, just plain old please and thank you. But most of those lists generate about 30 to 40 items. And the coolest thing about it is that 90% of the time, they're exactly the same. So whether I'm asking mm -hmm. executives in the C-suite or I'm asking frontline workers in a, in a labor environment, the answers are always the same. So we know what these behaviors are. We know exactly the kinds of behaviors we want, and we know the exact kind of behaviors that we can engage in to create those uh, perceptions. And similarly, when we ask what, what kinds of things are the opposite of respect that create a sense of disrespect or that you don't matter, the number one is interrupting, which is interesting maybe because it's a gendered behavior. It is behavior that tends to be directed more towards women than men. And this is why when we start talking about disrespect, we have to recognize it really is the gateway drug to more insidious and potentially discriminatory things. But other things include rolling eyes, making uh, derisive comments, failing to acknowledge somebody, uh, talking about somebody in a negative way who's not present to be able to hear it or react to it. And even just not giving somebody your full face when they're talking, being distracted, being on a screen, looking at out the window when somebody's talking to you, those little tiny bits of behavior are really important fundamentals in a workplace. Now, they aren't necessarily going to make somebody ecstatic or not going to necessarily make somebody completely disengaged. But if you haven't got the fundamentals, it's really hard to get to the higher level forms of respect and disrespect that we see. 
I love that you brought up interrupting first, because that is something that I see and hear a lot about because meetings is one of the areas of my work that I invest a lot of time in creating productive meetings. And people are constantly complaining about being interrupted, especially women are being complaining about being interrupted or having their ideas kind of stolen by a man around the table and not getting credit for things that they're sharing when they do speak up. Yeah, it's really a kind of a big deal. If you think about it, men interrupt women about three times more than they interrupt other men. And women interrupt men and women equally. And so if you do the, the math really quickly, you see that women are, by and large, getting interrupted much more than men in a mixed-gendered workplace. And if we take it the next step, we see that if you're being interrupted all the time, or as you said, your ideas are being co-opted and owned by somebody else, you just start checking out. You start saying, why should I bother? My, I'm not going to get credit for my ideas. And I'm going to be spoken over. And so you start pulling back. And then if you look at the net effect of that is that men's voices get amplified and women's voices start diminishing. And that perpetuates the idea that men have more value in the organization, that their ideas are better, more important, more worth listening to. And we end up with a much larger problem than just interrupting. And there's a lot of those little disrespectful behaviors that do have to attach to biases. So if, if I have an unconscious bias, and let's face it, we all have unconscious biases. The data from the uh, implicit associations test says, for instance, that 80% of Americans have a implicit bias towards people with visible handicaps, and 90% of us have implicit bias towards older people. So we all have a bias. And if we attach to that bias and we come to work and we're having a bad day and we decide to be rude or uncivil to somebody, guess who we might choose? The person towards we have that bias. And since biases in America are largely collective, in other words, many white people have implicit racial bias, you start to see that if we're going to have a bad day and we're going to direct some hostility towards someone, it might be a racial minority. We start to see that these aren't just a matter of manners. This is a manner, a matter of equity in our organizations and health in our organizations. And that we have to recognize that this behavior we've excused for a long time, this rude and uncivil behavior, isn't just a shame that it happened on this day. It's it's part of a systemic problem. Yeah. And these are things that are really hard to change, right? It's really hard to change your uh, implicit bias. And some of these behaviors are really, they're so tiny and micro and habitual that it, it's almost impossible impossible to be totally conscious of what you're doing. So assuming that we're going to need help from others to do this change, and I think a lot about the roles of managers and what they can do to support a healthy culture and to kind of suppress behaviors that are inappropriate and lift up behaviors that are desirable what recommendations do you have? What can people do who observe these behaviors that shouldn't be there in the workplace? So the first thing we can do is recognize that this behavior that we've been allowed to excuse or put off, this rude and uncivil behavior, is really a problem and start to talk about it. And I, I don't think that shaming people for interrupting, for instance, is terribly helpful, but I think talking about when we're together having a conversation, let's talk about some ground rules we should try and put in place to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. So putting in positive ground rules with the expectation that everybody does want equity in the workplace and everybody does want every voice heard. A second really practical thing to do is to start to generate a an expectation that people will seek and receive feedback. We Because implicit bias is in our blind spots, because a lot of rude behavior is in our blind spots and very micro, we can't be expected to be self-aware all the time of the effect we're having on other people. But those people who are feeling that effect certainly are aware. And so I think that creating a feedback-rich environment where it is very typical that 
if you and I maybe have a difficult conversation, we, we disagreed on something and we worked through it. At the end of it, I might look at you and say, so that was a really tough conversation. Thank you for, thank you for sticking with it. I think we did a good job. Can you give me some feedback about what I did well or didn't do well in this conversation? What could I have done differently or better that would have been helpful to you? If we start making a habit of having that kind of debrief at the end of a conversation or the end of a meeting or just generally seeking feedback from the people around us, and we create a real humility and a willingness to hear about those things that we're doing we may not be aware of, not only are we likely to get feedback that's going to be extremely helpful to us. We start building trust and respect just by asking somebody's opinion about that. So getting and giving feedback, I think, is one of the really important skills we have to foster and develop. And it it begins with just at the end of a meeting, turning to the person next to you and saying, how did I show up today? Can Can you let me know? And then finally, I think that we need to be able to find some ways to let somebody else know that their behavior is not helpful to us without it being a confrontation. And that can be part of the ground rules of the organization. It can be part of an agreement we have between each other so that, um, so that we have previously, for instance, agreed that if I feel like I'm being put down or you've checked out on me, that I have permission to tell you, that creates a richer conversation and creates a self-correcting environment. I love the idea of getting permission ahead of time before there's an issue to just say, hey, I want to get better. I want to be a better manager or I want to get better in my role as a collaborator. If I do something that's not appropriate and I don't realize it or I, I don't ask for feedback, I still want your feedback. So please come and tell me about it. When a manager models that, it becomes normative behavior and it becomes part of what people want to emulate. Yeah. And I think the other thing you mentioned about being humble and having humility and listening to the feedback that even if you don't fully agree with it, but you're still respectful in the way that you listen and respond. Because I've seen many managers who will say, I want to hear feedback and then they don't get any. And then when they finally do, they're so frustrated that like, that person didn't know what they were talking about. And they basically ruined that opportunity from being one that can build trust and help them grow into something where they made the other person feel like they, <laughs> like, like they misinterpreted the whole situation and it was such a bad idea for them to speak up and give their manager feedback. You know, I always say that feedback is a gift and we've all gotten gifts we weren't crazy about, but we still say thank you and we accept it and we show appreciation. And if you do anything else, it's like throwing a gift back in somebody's face and inevitably they're going to get hurt and angry and you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. So arguing with feedback is never going to be productive. It's the kind of thing where we just have to have to accept it. We have to be gracious. We have to be recognize their courage in giving it to us. And even if we don't agree with it, we have to respect the fact that this is a perception we're creating and be curious enough to say to ourselves, what is it I'm doing that created for that person, that, that perception? And usually there's some learning to do there. I love that concept. The feedback is a gift. That's just, that's so perfect. It's so spot on. So I actually got to attend a workshop with you a couple of, I don't know, weeks or months ago. And you told some stories about harassment that I found to be shocking. One was about a professor who got ganged up on. Would you mind sharing that story just because it it shows how an unhealthy environment can blossom beyond just one person? So I was talking, I think this is the story, I was talking about a, a concept called mobbing or group bullying. 
And this was an individual who who had come from a very, very uh, difficult background, had come in from being homeless on the streets and really rehabilitated her life and went to get a job in part because her child had been removed from her custody. And in order to get her child back, she had to have a place to live and a, a job. So when you think in the order of really needing a job, she really needed a job. And she got a job in a sales support office, which is admin employees working together to support an external sales team. And her job was pretty much data entry. And when she got there, nobody was very nice to her. She was very determined to be successful at this job. As, I, as we said, she needed it. And within the first day, she went into the break room and there were a bunch of her coworkers looking in her lunchbox and making fun of her food. And one of them said to her, well, no wonder you have a weight problem. And she was devastated. She had never known she had a weight problem. And within a matter of days, things were disappearing from her desk. And she would say, who's taken my stapler or who's taken my scissors? And everybody would sort of snicker behind their hands. So it was pretty obvious that this was being done to taunt her. But she just tried to keep her head up and keep working. And things got worse. She got orange juice poured in her purse. Her jacket got splashed. And she was reporting this to the office manager who has recently promoted and, and didn't do anything about it. And all of this was affecting her ability to do her job. She was starting to slide and not do well. And finally, one day she came into work and the mouse to her computer was missing. And she went to her supervisor and said, somebody took the mouse from my computer and the supervisor wouldn't help her, said she was irresponsible and she kept losing things. And by the time she found it in the toilet, in the bathroom, she was in trouble because she hadn't been productive for the whole morning. And she got a note telling her she was going to lose her job. And she called her social worker, her social worker called human resources, and they came in, they investigated, and they found that she'd been terribly bullied. And they actually put her in a different branch of the office and removed her. But it was interesting because my job was to deal with the people left behind. And when I met with them, their view was it was her fault. She was weird. She made them uncomfortable. She didn't dress right. She had a funny haircut. She just was, her energy was weird. And I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned because I kept saying, what does that have to do with how you're treating her? I mean, you're professionals. You're in your workplace. And finally, one of them said, she's just so poor. And I realized it was bias and took a long time to figure out what to do with these folks. It was interesting, though. I met with them one-on-one afterwards, and I found that when they weren't in a group, they weren't justifying being mean to her. They were regretful. They were sad. They were remorseful. And it was my big recognition that when people get together and they mob up, they justify really bad treatment and they don't see it. But when you take them apart and you appeal to each of them as a human being, they realize the harm they've done. It was one of the worst cases of bullying I've ever seen. That is horrific. I I can't even imagine what that woman went through. And I can't imagine what the supervisors and the managers who were getting the reports who she was going to, what they were thinking and not responding and, and doing any kind of investigation themselves. Why do people ignore when there are reports like that? Well, in this particular case, there was not a lot of management present. There was an office supervisor. She was friends with many of the people who were engaged in this behavior and sort of bought into this justification. There's there's unfortunately a certain amount of bonding that happens when people conspire to gang up on somebody. Um, There's a little bit of a thrill that goes along with it. And she got caught up in that thrill and objectified the person and convinced herself that person didn't, wasn't really a human being. And when you do that, you can justify all sorts of terrible. 
Oh, I mean, I see the other side of it in some of the teams that I work with where the manager kind of knows it's wrong, but they also don't want to confront something because it's hard. It's hard to tell somebody that behavior is not appropriate. It's, it's hard to step in and, and discipline or kind of stop behaviors that are unhealthy because you don't want to deal with that, that person who you know is a difficult person. And so you're just kind of like, eh, it's not that bad. I'll just let it go. Yeah. And if it's just one person, that's one thing. But if you've got sort of a culture that's developed where people are all behaving badly, then you ha- you're going to be the one who's going to come in and make all of them unhappy and make all of them angry at you. And that's an enormous thing to take on. On the other hand, you're also the one who's let that culture develop. I very often see really unhealthy work cultures that have developed because a manager just didn't want to deal with little stuff, but that little stuff accumulated and it turned ultimately into a toxic culture. Yeah, that is a big problem. You let the little things slide. I want to shift a little bit because you mentioned something else in the workshop that I thought was really, it was a big mind shift for me. And that was when you have somebody who is considered to be a high performer, but has some unhealthy behaviors, we can't look at them as a high performer anymore. I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of organizations make is that they evaluate people based on their work product. And when somebody is particularly gifted or skilled in producing work product, whether that's a a surgeon who has great patient outcomes or whether it's a widget maker who makes the best widgets in the house, they're viewed as a, a strong performer. And at the same time, that person may be mistreating other people. They may have unearned privilege. They believe that because they're a high performer, they're entitled to behave badly, or they may just have been a not very nice person to begin with. And so I get these referrals. We need you to coach somebody who's a really high performer with some bad behavior. And that's the mistake we make is by looking at just the work product. If we think about what makes somebody really productive in an organization, it's both the work they do and the relationships they have, that they make the people around them better, that they work as a team, that they promote they promote work that's cooperative and and look to build relationships to make their work better and to make other people's work better. If somebody is dancing on other people's heads in order to make their work good, then we have to calculate in the cost of that person's, quote, good work product. And so this is squarely in management's portfolio. This isn't an HR issue. This is about managing performance and recognizing that when we manage performance and we tell somebody how they're doing, we focus on their relationships and their interpersonal skills as heavily as we focus on their execution. And if we do that systematically, we're telling people what we're going to reward. We're telling people how they can succeed. We're creating the expectation that people are treating one another well. And that expectation is so important because people want to be good. They want to be successful. They want to be told they're, they're, uh, they're a high achiever. And so if those expectations go hand in hand, we create different aspirations. I am just, I feel like this is the perfect place to end because it is squarely, as you said, management's role to look at performance, not just as the output of what someone achieves, but the way in which they get there. And I, I know that we tend to, we only manage what we measure. So we only focus on things that we know we're going to get either rewarded on or are going to be brought up in our performance reviews. So if we bring the same intentionality to the way in which we collaborate and we talk about those things just as frequently as we talk about the results that we're achieving, then it could really 
shift how people see themselves in their role. So I love this. I think it's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Fran. Where can people follow you and get in contact if they have additional questions or want to work with you? Sure. So I have a website. It's www.seppler.com. And I can be reached at franseppler at seppler.com. Wonderful. And we will include those in the show notes as well. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. And thank you again, Fran, for being here. I look forward to staying connected in the future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. What a conversation. It is so wonderful to have expert guests like Fran on these tough subjects. Now, before we go, I want to give two quick shout outs. First, if you have been listening to The Modern Manager from the beginning, thank you. And you are also likely familiar with SaneBox. SaneBox helps you organize your email automatically. So only the most important emails end up in your inbox. Personally, I am so glad that I started using it because I'm actually able to manage to inbox zero with SaneBox's help. You've heard me talk about it on those episodes and I really can't say enough good things about it. Go to sanebox.com slash manager to get a $25 credit. You really have nothing to lose. They have a free trial and it's definitely worth a look. This second shout out is to Megan, one of the listeners who sent me this email. She says, I've listened to all four episodes of The Modern Manager and I think each week is better than the last. The latest one with Erica Kesswin was awesome. Although I'm not currently in a management role, I've had great takeaways from each episode. And there's that whole managing your manager concept. And knowing what a rock star manager is and does really helps to encourage and coach your manager to be one. Great work. Looking forward to seeing where it goes from here. Thank you, Megan, for the encouragement and for the feedback. If you have found these episodes helpful, please leave me a rating or review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and I really appreciate it. As always, you can reach me at Mamie at MamieKS.com. That's M-A-M-I-E at M-A-M-I-E-K-S.com. I would love to hear from you. Tell me how the episodes are helping you in your work or what topics you want me to cover or really anything else. Thank you again for listening and I'll be back next week. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rockstar boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.